In this episode of Balancing the Christian Life, we talk about being a birth mother with Amber Jimerson. Welcome to Balancing the Christian Life. I'm Dr. Kenny Embry. Join me as we discover how to be better Christians and people in the digital age. So I was on Facebook and asked what topics people might be interested in hearing about in the podcast. There were some who were interested in hearing about being a parent to a strong-willed child. And yes, that is now on my radar. But there were more than a few who were interested in hearing more about adoption. And I noticed something about one of the members, Amber Jimerson. She's both very active and very thoughtful when I ask questions in that little group. Her answers often make me think for a minute about what it means to be a Christian. So I'm always excited to see when she's written something. One day, I noticed that she had advertised for a support group for birth mothers. So I decided to find out what her connection to adoption was. Amber and her husband, Tyler, live in Indiana, where her husband is an evangelist. She is a mother of four and an author of some short verse called Haiku Therapy. She's also someone who always makes me think. So, Amber, what is your connection to adoption? I was first inducted into the adoption community when I was 17. I got pregnant as a 16-year-old and chose adoption. And so I'm a birth mother. But actually, adoption is sort of in my family. My oldest sister was adopted out, so she's an adoptee. Um, My brother is also a birth father of two children. And my biological mom, who I grew up calling my birth mom, she was estranged from her family and spent time sort of in a foster care sort of situation. And so we have lots of family separation. (laughs) So yes, but primarily I'm a birth mother. (laughs) We've talked before. Your dad is also kind of in this mix as well, isn't he? My dad, his parents, his dad was 50 when he had him. Wow. So my dad's parents passed when I was very young and Mm -hmm. they had lived across the country. So I have a few memories of seeing them. He was estranged from his sister growing up. So I did not really know my aunt or my six cousins, I believe. And so I grew up with my step family. My stepmom is my mom. Her parents are my grandparents. Her nieces are my cousins. So I pretty much only knew step family. And my dad, when he was with my biological mom, she was estranged from her her parents. So he couldn't remember their names and communication was Mm -hmm. really difficult with my biological mom for a number of reasons. So I actually didn't know my maternal grandparents' names until I was in my 20s and I started searching. So I went through, because my my Mm step-grandparents, my grandparents, they're really Mm -hmm. into genealogy. So once I got married and started having children, I was curious about my own history. And I did just a series of reunions on my dad's side and my mom's side, which was great and it was difficult. But yeah, so there were a lot of pieces to put together as an adult. You said that you're a birth mother. Tell me, what does that mean? How did that happen? Go ahead. Yeah. No, sometimes I forget. Um, right. People don't know. <laughs> so I found out I was pregnant mm-hmm. when I was 16. 
I had had a pretty normal childhood, honestly. My parents, my dad, my stepmom, sure. I'm just going to call them my parents. They're great people. They're um, upstanding members of our community. They own a business here. And so they provided a pretty stable life. But pretty much since my middle school years, I started dealing with depression and just went on this really destructive route. And I was seeing a lot of counselors. My parents pretty much put any goals for me on the back burner. School went on the back burner. It was just trying to get me to survive, basically. And so my mom had prayed a lot (laughs) constantly for me. And I had run away when I was 16. Yeah, 16. They put me in rehab. And then uh, after they pulled me out of that, we were sort of trying to reconstruct our family life. And I went to a youth retreat and like rededicated my life to God and was super on fire. And when my mom was driving me home from the youth retreat, I was like, by the way, can we pick up some pregnancy tests? Like, I don't think it's anything. And she was like, okay. So uh, we did <laughs> we did three of them in a row each day and they were all positive. And she was like, no, like in denial, like surely not. So she took me to my doctor and we went to Kroger afterwards and she got the call and was like, yes, I'm pregnant. So she was disappointed, but I don't know if it was that night or the next night we went up to her room and I don't think my dad knew at this point, but she was like, all right, let's talk about your options. What are you wanting to do? And so she said, what about abortion? And I was like, no. And she went off on this, like, well, I'm so proud of you. That's so, you know, and I, I was just like, it wasn't, I just didn't want to have an abortion. Um, and so she was like, okay, what about adoption? And I said, nope. And she's like, all right. And so we decided that I would parent. My child is really excited. Besides being scared of telling my parents, I really was excited. So she, despite her disappointment, fully supported us. Um, we, my boyfriend at the time actually moved in with us for a time. And um, so they kept me on their insurance, drove me to all the appointments. The father was a year ahead of me. So I was a junior at the time. He was a senior. He graduated. Uh-huh. We moved in together. And they said, looking back, they said that they knew, because I'm very stubborn and rebellious, if they put their foot down and tried to control the situation, that they may Uh never hear from me again. So I was underage, but they let me move out. And I just got really depressed in that apartment. And we fought all the time. It was a really difficult situation. And so when I was actually seven months pregnant, like I remember one time he and I at some point in the apartment had considered adoption again, and we couldn't finish that conversation because we both felt physically ill Mm -hmm. just talking about it. But when I was seven months pregnant, I was really reaching the end of the rope with my relationship and something had happened. I don't remember what. And I drove to another friend's house. Uh, that night and we sat on the driveway. It was three of us. And I, for the first time I was like, okay, just, I'll let you tell me whatever you want to tell me. And he made a case for you should choose adoption. And it was the first time I just sat there and listened to all of this, this person's reasonings. And um, mainly he was like, this is your chance to you know, change the trajectory of your future. You can get out of the situation. You could go to college. 
you know, I was not thinking about school at all at this point. And then in my mind, once I agreed to that, it was also just always a given to me that obviously my son would be better off. That's pretty much the main goal. And I, um, I feel like I have said there were two decisions I made overnight and that was one of them. I went home and I prayed about it. And the next morning I called my best friend. She was away at a conference and I told her that's what I was doing. Then I called my parents and they found a pretty prominent adoption attorney in Indianapolis. I also don't remember how I convinced the father because he was so against it. I was pretty much eight, eight months along when we found uh, the parents. So I did not speak to his actual parents beforehand. Um, I was induced. And um, when they found out that he was born on their anniversary, they just came down. They were there in a different state. So they came down um, to meet us after he had been born. And the adoptive father's parents happened to be driving through Indiana. So they stopped by as well. And then let's see. I like to talk about that hospital experience because it's so different than what I hear from people today where adoptive parents are in the the labor room and delivery room and, you know, to each their own. But I was so not cognizant of any of these factors. And I'm very thankful now looking back that I just had free reign of that time in the hospital. There was no pressure to share it. And they did come by and they visited with us a few times, but I got all that time with him and with my friends and my family, we took pictures and we talked and it was really, I think, closure for me. And I remember when we signed the papers, the attorney came in and he was talking and I saw that they had put baby Moore, which is my maiden name. And I just immediately, I got so angry. I was like, no, it can't say that you have to put a name. And so we gave him a name that we knew they would change. Uh, We wanted an actual name on the paper And then while he was going on about stuff that I probably should have been listening to, I imagined not signing the papers and I thought I could take him home and I could raise him. And I sort of just envisioned that. And I knew that I could, like, I knew that my parents would support me, that I didn't have to sign. And I think that's why I did sign because I didn't feel any pressure. It really was my decision at the time. It did feel like that. And I can understand where it comes from. Like back in the day, we went through the baby scoop era in America and some other countries, actually, where it was very secret. Mm -hmm. It was shamed. If you got pregnant out of wedlock, it was expected that you gave your baby up and you just didn't talk about it anymore. It was very shameful. And so we've swung to the opposite side where it's like this thing that you were shamed for actually is a great thing. And so there's a lot of pride you're praised a lot as being brave and loving. And so I really did believe that. And I needed to hear that. I think I needed that. I needed something Mm -hmm. to hold on to. But (laughs) for someone who, you know, describing my teenage years, I was wrecking my life. And then I got pregnant. And then I made this decision for adoption. Now everyone was praising me for being so wise and loving and brave. It was like, like a, a gambling addict winning the lottery is what it felt like. It's like, I don't like, I very much welcomed it. It felt really good, but I think it also set me up for unrealistic expectations right. as a mother because I really did buy in so much to how loving and brave and wise and mature that I was. And I just, as soon as I signed those papers, all I wanted was to get married and have children. And that wasn't even on my radar before I got pregnant. 
it was like my biological clock started ticking. I just wanted, like, I just wanted children. Like I wanted to, to parent. And I thought I had this vision of who I was, who I would be as a mom because of all of these messages that were given to me. And it was just, it came crashing down because um, I'm, you know, not some magical, like wise mother. I have learned a lot about adoption in the years since. And every year I go back and reevaluate my situation in particular. And I haven't ever come to the place where I thought I wouldn't do that again. But there are things that I wish I had known. Like, uh, I have mentored teen moms before, and the ones that consider adoption are usually the ones that are the most equipped to parent. They're just so anxious, and they're so afraid of being inadequate, and they're so, they don't think that them being a parent can coexist with the goals that they have in their life. So part of me thinks, how many times are we encouraging women to choose adoption who really just need someone to say, you could do this. Everyone feels insecure and scared and no one is, you know, perfectly adequate to be a parent. And sometimes I think like I have the support, but I see a lot of people who don't have the support and adoption is, is, you know, said to be a win, win, win. And you're just praised. I don't ever try to force anyone. I want to support anyone in their decision. I do think that a lot of people do make that from a very loving perspective. They're, they think that it's the right thing. And in many cases, it is the right thing. But it isn't just a given. There are a lot of uh, cons that aren't talked about. So that's that part of the story. <laughs> it was many years ago, so there's much more, but I'll stop there. <laughs> As an outsider looking in, this this looks like to me like a very loving act. How do you view it? When you think of adoption, the people you hear about the most and the stories you hear the most are typically adoptive parents. And yes. then probably behind that is birth parents. I think yeah. birth parents, you know, you can, you can, you know, you see their stories. And adoptees, who are the ones that are probably the most affected by this decision, are usually not either asked or given a space to speak, or they don't feel comfortable speaking. Mm-hmm. And especially in church settings, because of the very strong narrative we have about adoption. And so I personally feel like I wish I had just known about adoptee experiences and their stories and how they felt. I remember it was sold to me that like, okay, we had a semi-open adoption. So I would get updates for so long that nothing until he turned 21 and then he could come and find me. And in my mind, it was just, of course, he would come and find me. He's going to be so happy and grateful and thankful. And it's just going to be, you know, it's going to turn out very well. I remember when I met my husband, well, I already knew him, but when we were talking about it, he's, you know, an outsider. He's like, well, what if he doesn't want to come and find you? And I was like, what? (laughs) Like, (laughs) I couldn't imagine it. And I was so sensitive because, you know, it's a very sensitive thing that if anyone said anything negative, it would be so hurtful. and. A lot of reunions, unfortunately, because agencies, um, you know, they don't, they actually don't often provide post counseling for birth parents yeah. or adoptees. They don't provide counseling for how to navigate reunion. So, and, and then the general public doesn't really have any information about like how to navigate those complicated relationships. Yeah. So a lot of times, you know, you see the reunion stories and it's great, but then trying to make that actually work, you know it can go awry so easily because everyone's coming in 
with no information. Right. There's a lot of emotion involved. I think birth parents especially need to know and need to be prepared to do their own healing so that they can step out of the way for the adoptees to feel all the feelings, whatever feelings they may have. And because I've seen a lot of birth parents, because it's such a painful thing and you don't want to feel like you did something wrong, if you have a relationship with the adoptee and they maybe feel angry or maybe they push away from you or they're complicated to get close to, they take it so personally and then they cut off relationships. And so I wish there was just more information of these are normal feelings to expect in adoption. And this is normal for the stages that adoptees go through. And this is what would be helpful to communicate. I remember someone asked me, don't you just want openness kind of just for you? And there is sort of that idea that while openness in adoption obviously benefits birth parents, uh-huh. but really a lot of people have this idea, even birth parents, that ideally it would be best if they just sort of scooted out of the picture. Uh-huh. That way the adoptee and their family can have that life. Um, but actually research has shown this is something that is being studied and has been studied that openness in adoption benefits all people involved, that adoptive parents, adoptees, and birth parents who are in open adoptions actually report more satisfaction than in closed adoptions. And then because of our history with closed adoption in America, we have a lot of research on how that affected um, adoptees back in when everything was closed and secret. Um, there were a lot of negative mental health effects. So we see worse outcomes where there's closed adoptions. And that also includes like not much communication and transparency. So uh, you don't have to have contact necessarily, but as long as you can openly talk about your feelings, or if you have information about your family, or if it's just something that's, you know, you're free to talk about it and there's transparency, that's always better. And so stuff like that, we need to talk about here's what we've learned from what has went wrong. And this is what works. And that was stuff I didn't have any concept of you know, as a 16 year old. (laughs) Um, What did you feel right afterwards and and what helped you? I guess that's a better way to ask this question. Well, immediately afterwards, I'm pretty sure I went into shock. (laughs) I I didn't really feel much of anything. I remember I went to stay with my parents afterwards to heal and my mom and I would take walks. And I remember showing, I had an old flip phone and I had these pixelated pictures from the hospital and a friend yeah. of mine came out and I ran up and showed him all the pictures on there. But it was like, I wasn't emotionally affected yet. But during that time, I actually had nightmares. Really? I would have nightmares almost every night. And I've since I feel like my subconscious was trying to work through things that I was not allowing. In the first year, I was, uh, every time I saw babies, I would cry. Um, I worked at Steak and Shake, so I spent a lot of the time uh, in the bathroom crying or glaring at pregnant women. And luckily, um, really luckily, I'm so I'm just shocked that this isn't common practice. The attorneys that I went through sort of outsourced their counseling, and so I was very very lucky to get free lifelong counseling as a birth mother from a birth mother. So I had counseling that was free, support groups yearly celebrations for Mother's Day. And that was my lifeline because I really didn't talk about it with anyone else. I was not open about it. And so being in a space where I didn't have to explain anything, where other girls knew exactly how I felt and just to hear their stories and to cry, um, that was 
it was just, it was so, so crucial and so important. So, so that helped. And then I think, you know, I don't know. Um, I, somewhere in there, I became a Christian and, um, eloped and had four children and became a preacher's wife. <laughs> and so my life. Wow. Crazy. <laughs> and, yeah, I'd um, say. My second son was born almost exactly five years later. And uh, that, I don't know, it, 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 it did not, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know how to say this. Your children do not replace each other at all. And so it didn't, yeah. um, I didn't move on or forget or anything like that. But I think it was very healing to finally be able to parent so I think that helped. And then we had finished our last updates at five years. And then we went maybe a year with no contact. And then um, a couple of years later, I got a Facebook request from his mom. And it was a Wednesday night. We were going to go to church. And I was like, <gasps> so I couldn't believe it. And um, we just spent, we messaged each other back and forth. She sent me videos of him and we compared him and Isaac. And there were a lot of similarities. And she was like, you know, how about we just do away with the middleman, the attorneys, because that's how we were communicating Mm -hmm. and just talk directly. So we sent each other our addresses and we sent stuff to each other. It was still very much semi open in that we we'd never had visits and I only spoke with her really. So, but it was, I was so, I was elated. And then a few years after that, she (laughs) asked me, she was like, would you be okay with writing letters to him? And I was like, absolutely. Of course, I would love to write letters. And she was like, well, he might have some hard questions. And I was like, oh, bring it on. <laughs> like, I was so excited. <laughs> um, I think he was maybe nine or so at that time. And um, I had had two other children at this point. And so the first letter came and it was a short letter. And <laughs> He was, it was just basic information. Like, you know, I like to do this stuff. I'm in this grade. I have this animal. And then the last sentence was like, by the way, why didn't your parents help you raise me? And I just bawled. Like I wasn't Mm -hmm. expecting that question. Although it was great. I love questions. So I sent it to my parents and luckily I still had my contact at my counseling, uh, area. And so I talked to the director of this adoption counseling place and I was Uh asking her for advice and she was amazing on how to communicate, like how to communicate unity with the adoptive parents and also encourage those questions and validate like these are, you know, I'm so glad that you're asking and you can always ask, you know, anything. And so I did explain it in kids terms, like my parents, we all love you and think about you all the time. And my parents actually had, honestly, they had considered adopting him, but with their business, they didn't, they didn't think they'd be available and they didn't. So they thought that it would be best for him to have a family who could be there for him completely. And so it was all that. And I just was again, like affirming, like, I will, you can ask me anything. I really, I'm always, most birth parents, honestly, are afraid of overstepping their bounds And so I really, we've only ever had one real disagreement. I mostly try to let them lead, but having that openness, it was just like, it made the pieces of the puzzle go together and there was just peace. And then things have gotten progressively more open. And so I really feel like right now I'm in a really good place 
we don't talk very often, but I, I have like contact with her whenever I need it. My son now, Isaac, has or my son at home. They've played Minecraft together. We were supposed to have a visit in 2020, but you know, COVID. So we did do yeah. a, a Zoom meeting. And that was the first time I had seen him and directly spoken to him. And he was so sweet. So yes, that's been healing. Openness, community, uh, learning more, my family, support groups and counseling. All of that has been essential. I'm thinking about somebody that might be in a situation that is similar to yours. I think you understand, which is somebody thinks that they're, they're good. They don't, they don't have any worries. This is now something that's in their past and they don't have to worry about it anymore. From my perspective as, as quite frankly, a college professor, professor, they don't know what they don't know. And one of the things is, even if you think it's going to be a waste of your time, talk to somebody. Would you agree with that? Oh, a hundred percent. And that's something I have seen personally a lot. And for me, even I'll start with myself. Mm -hmm. I think it's very hard to remember, but I do think I did end up having a meeting before I had given birth because I believe that my counselor had said, you know, just trying to prepare me that this is going to be a loss and you're going to be grieving. But in my mind, I was like, no, I'm not going to, it's not a loss because here's X, Y, and Z. Here are my rational, logical reasons and they're good reasons so I feel good about it. And in my mind, it was like, so therefore there's not any loss at all. It's only positive. And it did, it took after I had a journal that I went back through and I wrote maybe a couple months after giving birth, I was like, I think I understand now what she means by this is a loss. It's like felt in your body. Like there are different parts of your brain, your rational, logical brain, your thinking brain is the one that tries to tell you, oh, these are the good reasons. This is why you shouldn't feel the way that you feel. And that goes for anything. Um, and yeah. then there's like the primitive brain and your body where trauma mm -hmm. and loss and grief is lodged in your body. And so, um, so I, I, I'm, I lead the support group now, and this actually just came up. Uh, we had a, a woman come to our support group who was just a few weeks out and she was middle-aged. Um, and so she had just placed her baby, was very happy with her decision. And she had a history of, you know, anxiety and depression. And she was like, I don't know why I'm crying all the time. And she cried throughout the whole thing. She was so sweet. And I was like, no, please keep crying. Like it just, just let yourself cry. And she's like, oh, no, I think I just have a history of mental health issues. And it was like, no, this is your body grieving and your postpartum. And despite all the reasons that are good reasons, your body feels this loss. Like even if you're pregnant and you, you start to read how uh, development works and labor and delivery and all these systems that are in play to bond the baby and the mother and, you know, all of that begins during pregnancy. And so separation for any reason is going to be a trauma in some sense to both. And it's going to be felt because it was not expected by your body. And so people just don't know that you, you don't know until you, you know, two things make a difference. One, if you did not have full agency over your decision. So if you were coerced, if you were pressured, if you were in some way forced into it, those people I have noticed are like, are almost unable to talk about it. Um, they're still, they're very much in a trauma response, even decades later. And another thing is if they haven't had the opportunity to talk about it, 
you know, I get flack sometimes because I talk about it so much that people think, oh, she must be just, you know, wallowing in grief all the time. And I kind of think it's backwards because I can talk about it and I don't cry anymore. And it's like, it's just talking about another thing for me. But the people who they hold it in and maybe they're, you know, in their 50s and they've never talked about it. When they start to talk about it, it's like as though it is happening to them right there. Like it is still like they are so their body is so affected and it's so painful. And that's because it's been stored and it's been building up and that affects you. And, you know, that can come out as medical issues. You know, when we stuff in those emotional things that can come out in the body. I go to church with you at 17. I see what's going on. I'm an outsider. Mm -hmm. What do I say that gets me in trouble? What do I say that actually helps you at that point? I would say my number one thing is if there is a pregnant person, talk with them about how they feel about parenting. Um, just kind of get an idea of what are your obstacles here? Like, is there anything we could do to help to make that possible? Would you be interested? Why are you choosing? Not Maybe not asking. I'm not saying interrogate them. <laughs> if you have a good relationship right. with them. Right, right, right. I have been asked in the past because I'm a birth mother to go speak with so-and-so because they're pregnant and tell them the statistics on being a single mom and try to convince them to choose adoption. And even in that time, when I was very, very like gung-ho about it and very, very proud of being a birth mother, I felt so uncomfortable. It felt wrong to try to pressure someone, especially this person who the reason I was being called in was because they didn't really want to. So in that case, you've got to sort of check yourself. Cause I think we all have people that we love who are maybe struggling with infertility or who are trying to adopt. And when we see someone yeah. who's pregnant and is not married, we think, Oh, this is great. I know so-and-so, you know, and maybe they do want to do that and that's fine. But like that comes second, like first see what the actual need is. Is there a way we could keep this, this family together? Uh, James one twenty seven is sort of the like, clarion call of the Christian adoption movement. And it's um, visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. And I don't know about you, I personally, and I think everyone that I've talked to, when I heard that originally, I thought, okay, visit the shut-ins and the elderly and then adopt infants, like, like orphans and widows, like they're two separate things. And, you know, and so um, it was much later that I realized that's a reference to dozens of Old Testament scriptures that are about like, um, you can call it uh, the dyad or Tyler, my husband calls it the, what was it? Vulnerable quartet. It's usually four groups. It's the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, and the poor. And you find all sorts of verses about that. But what that is talking about, actually, the orphan and the widow is a single mother and her child. It's the, the widow who, because especially in that society in patriarchal times, like if you lost the man, that's a, that's a hugely vulnerable unit. And what that meant was assist that vulnerable unit in such a way that they can survive together. It never meant separating. And so um, I want to say with a huge caveat, I never try to pressure anybody anyway. And so I have a lot of friends who have chosen uh, adoption and I was there when they were pregnant and I'm a stubborn person or I know like when you make your decision, you can't be swayed. And so that's fine. They just need support right. and what they're going to do. That's fine. But so many times uh, girls want, are, 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 are like 
they're going back and forth between can I parent or should I choose adoption? It's usually not abortion or adoption. Like sometimes it is, but usually it is, they are going back and forth between do, do I have what it takes to parent? And so that's something that I think should like, if you know somebody, see what's going on with that first. And then, um, yeah. Wow. That wasn't even, that was sort of an answer to your question. (laughs) I got way all over here. Okay. (laughs) Um, so uh, how you can support them first and, and foremost, and maybe just give them a space to talk. Um, you don't have to have the right thing to say. Just listen and validate them. And if they if they convey this is how I'm feeling, just be like, yeah, that's that's legit. Like, I, I can't imagine. So you don't have to say the right thing. You don't have to try to to pressure them or push them in a certain direction. Really, I think what people need is support and relationships and people who are there for the long haul. Empathy is needed all around. Um, I will. I mean, on the one hand. I can also think of times where people have opened up to me as a result. And even though like the situations they were comparing it to weren't quite the same, um, sometimes it is nice to, to hear other people's stories and connect with them. Um, so, so I guess it depends on how, how you're doing it, but if it's more like judgmentally, like, well, here's my story. And so if I can do it, why can't you, <laughs> that's not helpful. Uh, something I was actually told as a teenager was, Oh, you um, well, I could never do that. Um, oh, well, actually, I was specifically told I was incapable of love, that I wasn't a Christian even <laughs> when I. So and then um, I had a, a friend who was pregnant in high school as well. And she had told me, um, well, you'll change your mind when you see him. And even though now looking back, I can understand where they were coming from. In that yeah. moment, it just wasn't helpful. It was alienating right. and isolating. It's like, well, I'm going through this and I need help. And like, what if I don't change my mind? This is the decision I'm going to make. And so can you be there for me? Can you help? So, so yeah. As soon as you had your first, you had a, a deep desire to have more. Yes. Yeah. And what was that all about? Or do, do you even know? When I got pregnant, there was a time in the hospital when the last day that we were there, I was on the bed and I was holding him and I had never hold a, held a baby, by the way. I still don't like holding people's babies, oh my. <laughs> except for my own. My own. Okay. <laughs> um, um, I was holding him and he was asleep and we were getting ready to leave. And so I was passing him off to the mom. So this was the last time I was going to hold him. And midway as I was passing him, he woke up and he did that, like, you know, leaned back and yeah. did that newborn cry. And I remember uh-huh. in my body, everything moving. It was just like it sent off this like signal in my body and I wanted to reach out and grab him and like comfort him. Like it's just a motherly thing. Like I just, it was every, all this energy and I sat completely still and I didn't reach out and she took him. And like, that was such a, for some reason that story has always stuck with me and it was such a moment. And I think there was something about that, like something about having a child and not being able to like, complete that, you know, to be a parent, to to reach out and to comfort. And, um, and I just think that after that happened, my body was like, no, you're supposed to have a baby, (laughs) you know? So so we had four, (laughs) like, I kind of also think that's (laughs) more. And I don't know that that was, I'm not saying that was smart. I think it was just like the subconscious, like making up for it or, 
I don't know. So yeah, yeah, it was very, it was very strange. Did you learn any spiritual lessons through all of this? Mm, mm, yeah. Yeah. I've spent so much time talking about adoption um, on social media and sometimes I get negative responses to it. And um, I realized at some point that it's not even about adoption. It's really about our relationship with grief and with um, uh, negative emotions and um, loss. And so many of us, mm-hmm. um, even Christians, are so uncomfortable with fully experiencing those things. And my concept mm-hmm. of God has changed a lot throughout the years. And so, how so? Well, that's a different podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just a lot. <laughs> but um, something that, and I, I've went through a lot of doubt and, um, you know, deconstruction and stuff like that. But uh, my husband has been on a kick lately where he's been reading a lot of like um, Jewish sources and rabbinical writings and stuff. And um, yeah. it's been sort of a huge refresh, like, not refresher. It's this refreshing thing, I guess, because it's, it's opened God up for me in a way that validates what I feel like I am seeing all the time. When I, when I deal with people who are grieving or when we talk about loss and tragedy and and humanity, (laughs) a lot of the stories that we just sort of skim past, all of those complex emotions and dynamics are there in the Bible. There's a, there's a space for that. Like all of those characters are, if you really sit and you try to like flesh it out instead of just reading the words, it's emotional and it's human. And the fact that like that's validated, it's not something that, you know, not every story is moralized. Like <laughs> to me, I've learned that this through adoption, I've learned that this is what it means to be alive essentially. And that sort of that longing for God even and for faith like comes from a place of, of heartbreak and all of the, this vast array of, of human experience and emotion um, to see that that is expressed and validated in the Bible. Because sometimes I think uh, we can get sort of a misperception that what it means to be a Christian is to always be looking on the bright side, to always be upbeat and smiling and always self-sacrificing and always like, and I, so many of us deal with so much guilt and fear and frustration when we have perfectly human emotions, because we feel like we're doing something wrong. And if we actually look in the Bible and look at these, these characters, it's like, no, God knows what it's like to be human. And really like, I really, I, I know that it's been immensely healing for me to be able to sit with my discomfort and my emotions. And then to see that that's not something that is me going against some biblical teaching. That's something that God understands and that that's how he has created us. It's very, it's very healing. Um, uh, I also, I had written something. I don't know if you want to include this. Sure. But I had written something this isn't about adoption, but, um, there was a lot going on last year. Um, a lot of loss and, and just a lot of stuff that happened. And, and so I wrote this, I said, there must be a hundred quotes about life being made up of small moments and service and love and meaning being found in those small, deceptively mundane moments. It's so cliche, so repeated because maybe it's one of life's greatest discoveries. 
Tragedy may happen in a dramatic moment, but never a singular moment. The catastrophes of life are nestled between a thousand moments of mundane grief, pain, joy, suffering, tears, sleeping, responsibilities, breathing, eating, waiting, 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 dishes, and sweeping floors, and driving to appointments. And our lives are nestled between each other's, your joy touching my pain, your loss edging my gain, your laughter brushing against my ache. Each day, a cacophony of our collective laughter and groaning. It seems daunting. How do I hold space for the fullness of you and also for me? How do I honor your experiences and my own? What do I do with a thousand moments that are never as big as I thought they would be? How do I touch your pain? What is the texture of grief? How do I love when all around us is the reality and inevitability of loss? How do we hold it all together? Maybe by holding a moment, just one moment at a time. Um, So I wanted to share that. Because I think um, I think I've learned that from adoption primarily, and then I see it repeated in everyone. Because we all go through loss, and we all have heartache, and we all have longing, and we all have suffering and pain and tragedy. And I think what we all need is to be honest and transparent, and to have people to lean on, and to just walk together through it. And I think that's what it means to, to, to be, to show God to people and to like bring heaven here. It's not to run or deny those things or stuff them down or pretend it doesn't bother you as much or to just say, well, at least this and I shouldn't feel this way. Just recognize the humanity of it all and just cry together and, you know, and to do life together. How do you do the authentic? How do you do the vulnerability among a group of people that are in their Sunday best and they're trying to authentically show reverence to God and everybody around them is basically a train wreck? (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, I don't know about you, but I am a big believer in you have to you have to be together outside of services. Um, Mm -hmm. all of the most intimate conversations I've had, well, that's, I mean, I have had some in the building, but most of it, you don't get to really know someone unless it's outside of services. So, you know, get, go on (laughs) coffee dates, have people over. Um, I've also unfortunately seen, I think everyone has, if we don't create those relationships now, then when someone does go through something very difficult and public, we don't know how to respond. We know we should be there for them, but we haven't already built up that relationship. And so either we don't show up at all or mm-hmm. we do, but it seems superficial because, you know, we don't actually know that person. So I really like, you've got to make relationships with people um, outside of services. Um, and then I think it also does come down to a decision that everyone has to make, which is, do I let myself be vulnerable and do I say what I really feel? Yeah. And do I let go of what they might think of me? And yes, there will mm-hmm. always be a couple of people who may sort of judge you. But what I found is usually it's because they have that very real fear themselves. Like they are very preoccupied of what other people think of them. And so they judge people yeah. when other people are vulnerable yeah. because they could never do that. But then what, what I don't think is talked about as much is that when you are vulnerable, you will also meet probably about five other people who are, who will say, I'm so glad you said that. I struggle with this mm-hmm. too. And then you learn things about people that no one else knows. 
And so, yeah, you're going to get some pushback, but you're going to gain a lot too. Speak through either, either somebody who's going through, I'm, I'm, I'm pregnant and I don't know what to do and I'm scared and blah, blah, blah. Or you you can speak to that group if you want to, or yeah, I I went through this experience, but I just don't know what to do with it anymore. I mean, either one of those groups would would be fine. Mm -hmm. Well, again, I would say, um, uh, well, I guess I can sort of promote myself here. Um, it's not really me, but, um, I have, I facilitate a monthly, um, online, it's a virtual support group, uh, through the national association Mm -hmm. of adoptees and parents. And so we just started this year. Um, it's a monthly support group for first families for birth parents, although we do get some adoptees in there, uh, which is always fun. Mm -hmm. Um, and we are also, hoping to have guest speakers every few months. So I would say looking for support groups is, is a definite something that helps. Um, And again, I guess I have to also say listening to adoptees um, you need, first of all, you need your group of people that you can identify with and who validate you and help you witness, you know, who can witness your own grief, but you also need, to um, to really listen to other perspectives and to adoptees. I end all of my podcasts with be good and do good. What is good? Um, I would say whenever I speak, a common question is, what can I do? You know, like I'm concerned about this. What can I do? And I think what everyone can do, and it seems so small, but it would really make such a huge difference is to actively listen and to really just make a space for people's stories, even if you don't agree with them. And even if you don't know what to do with it, just invite people to tell their stories, listen to their perspectives, ask questions about how they feel, just learn and then chew on that over the years and then see what happens. Um, So I would say, listen and hold space for each other. That sounds good. Amber, I've enjoyed this a lot. I think you're one of the most thoughtful people that I've talked to. You always have, whenever I see a post from you, I know it's going to be thoughtful. I know it's going to be thought provoking. I know it's somebody who's, who's, who's given a lot of thought to the questions that are in there. The other thing that I know, and you've written a book called Haiku Therapy. Everybody who's listening to this ought to go out and and get it. it. It's, it's a bunch of short poems that, that are, Again, very thoughtful. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you're somebody who thinks deeply, and I, I really appreciate this. And I, I really appreciate you sharing your story because mm-hmm. I, I think this will help people. I, I, th- I think I think it does. So, well, thank you for doing this. Thank you, thank you so much for having me on, and thank you for for what you do with the group and allowing these conversations and discussions. I must admit, I learned a lot about what it means to be a birth mother. Amber impresses me even more than I know more about her story. Also, I never thought about what she calls the vulnerable quartet. Widows, orphans, the foreigner, and the poor. She has done some truly amazing things, and I'm grateful that she's willing to talk about this so freely. Amber, thank you for what you do, and who you are. I know you might try to deflect this, but I'm going to say it anyway. You're helping a lot of people by talking about this. 
As for the good thing I'm thinking about, I'm more than a little stressed. I've got some projects for the university which are coming to a head. However, my wife has been doing some small but kind things for me. Every couple hours she comes in and gives me a kiss or brings me coffee, and I'm reminded it's often simple, small things that mean a lot to me. Thanks, babe. I also want to thank those who help financially support the podcast, like Sean Heifel, Kevin Nansen, George Sanchez, Don Nietzsche, Barbara McWayne, and my parents. You truly do make this possible for me to do. I've recently conducted several more interviews, like Don Truex on leadership and Edwin Crozier, Jacob Hudgens about grace. Next week on the program, I plan to release my interview with Bob Darnell about converting from Judaism. Bob is someone I have known almost my entire life, and I know his story will inspire you. So until next time, let's be good and do good.